2 Timothy chapter 2, as we continue on the subject of usable vessels. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll begin again at verse 15. I hope that this portion of Scripture gets down into your heart to where every time you see it from now on, as long as you live, there will be certain words and phrases here that will speak to you. This, of course, is the way we grow and mature as Christians. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, as we are reminded by the Spirit of God. And I encourage you again, when God speaks to you through a word or a verse that we cover, write a note alongside of it. Your Bible is to be marked. It is to be written in. Put notes in your Bible so the Spirit of God can remind you later on. I can't tell you how many times I've been called on by someone, would you please come and teach a lesson? That I've been able to drop my Bible open and begin in a portion of Scripture that the Lord lays on my heart. And because I have written notes in there where the Spirit of God has spoken to me in the past, you know how difficult it is for me, but sometimes I can preach for an hour on a half of a verse. That's a good way to be able to share with other people. If they are talking to you about some verse, say, well, you know, the Lord spoke to me about that verse sometime ago and I wrote this down. And chapter, or verse 15 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy is a powerful verse. Remember I told you when it says study, that means to use diligence and do it quickly. The implication in the Greek is to do it with diligence, consistency, and with speed. Study to show or to set or place near yourselves approved unto God, tested and tried unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed or embarrassed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That means cutting a straight line in it, knowing how to divide the word of God. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is already past, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. We've said that if we are to be a usable vessel unto honor for the Lord, first of all, we have to be what? Expendable. We die and we receive the life of Christ within us, so that it's not us that lives but Christ. Secondly, we said you had to be sendable. Anywhere, Lord, whatever you want me to do, here am I, Lord, send me. I have never yet seen a Christian doing his own thing that God has used to bless others. I have never seen a self-centered Christian yet become a fruitful Christian. It's when we become God-centered, Christ-centered, that we begin to see fruitfulness come out in the life of a believer. Those that are doing their own thing over in their own little grist mill never become productive nor fruitful for the kingdom of God. You have to be spendable. And again, I appreciate what one man said. The problem with many Christians today is if God told them that he wanted to send them somewhere, they'd have to go get the bank's approval. Let me just, I don't know why I'm saying this right now, but young people, listen to me. Young married couples, listen to me. Don't get deeply head over heels in debt to where you're making payments all the time. God may want to pull up your roots and send you somewhere. So don't get your roots sunk down so deeply that if he wanted to send you, you couldn't go. 
Then we talked last week about the fact that a usable vessel is bendable. Bendable. We talked concerning Jeremiah, the 18th chapter. We noticed three things there in Jeremiah, the 18th chapter. First of all, the principle. The principle is that God is sovereign. If you don't like it, that's tough. God is sovereign. He is going to have his way. He is going to have his will. He is in complete charge, and he is the potter, and we are the clay. And we talked about the fact that the wheel, the potter's wheel, today if we were to apply it as an example of how God works on us, they are the circumstances of life. And God many times will put us on that wheel and begin to bear pressure down on us to where we don't want to flex. And when that happens, off the wheel, back on the board, he begins to pound and reshape and soften and make us moldable and pliable, and then back on the wheel says, let's try this again. And God will do this time and time again, but finally, if he finds out that we are not pliable, not bendable, not supple in his hands, not responsive to his will, what happens? He that being often reproved or worked on and hardeneth his neck or becomes inflexible, so suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. He becomes a vessel unto dishonor, not usable, cast out into the potter's field. The second thing that we talked about, that was the principle that God is sovereign. The second one is the purpose. It said that he did a work. He worked a work with his hands. The potter has a work that he wants to do in your life and mine. There's not a person sitting here this morning, but what God has a blueprint for your life. He's already drawn it out. He's already said, this is what I want to do with this life. But God is a gentleman and he will not force himself upon anyone. When I talk to some people, they realize that God is not going to grab them by the nap of the neck, shake the slack out of them and say, you will be my child and I will force you into heaven whether you like it or not. They know that God doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts, woos us, tries to win us, by the Holy Spirit makes Jesus Christ real to us? But how many of you know that two people can be sitting in the pew, both of them having the same education and the same home background, the same training, excuse me, hear the same message, and one will say, yes, I want to receive Jesus as the Lord of my life. The other will go, let me tell you something. God doesn't reach over and shake this one and say, you will, and slap the other one and say, you won't. He doesn't tie his hands down. Him that cometh unto me... I will not cast out. Believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe into the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Now, the interesting thing is, the moment we talk about that, they'll say, well, I know God isn't going to force me into the kingdom of God. Now, there's some people that are fatalists that believe that. God knows, knew before I was ever born, whether I was going to enter into heaven or go to hell. God knew that. Because God knows me. Not that he forces me to. If I say to Paul, if I say, Paul, in on the kitchen table is a bowl of spinach and a Snickers candy bar. Go and get whatever you want. Now, the spinach is cold and there's no salt on it. Go get what you want. How many of you know he's not going to take the cold spinach? Now, does that force him not to take the cold spinach? I mean, when he walks in there and there's the Snickers bar and there's the cold spinach. I'm talking about you. There's a, there's a, there's a cold spinach with no salt on it. And here's a Snickers bar over here. And I say, go take whatever you want. You'll just enjoy yourself. How many of you know he's going to come out and say, boy, good old spinach. How many of you know you don't know kids if that's what you think, see? Now, I'm not God, but I can pretty well say, now, odds are that he's going to come back out of that kitchen with a candy bar. 
I didn't force him to take the candy bar. I said, take whatever you want, but I know a kid. And if they can get a good old yummy Snickers bar, they're going to take a Snickers bar. Or if it's a cookie next to some spinach. Or a cookie next to some pea soup. Good old yummy pea soup. Or baked carp. You know, next to whatever it might be. I know kids and I know what they're going to take. Now, if you'll just magnify that a few million times, what I'm trying to tell you is that God, being omniscient, meaning he knows everything, knows every opportunity you and I are going to have to receive his son. He's never going to force his son on us, but he's going to give us the opportunity. And yes, he knows ahead of time whether we're going to or not going to accept him. But none of us will be able to stand in eternity and say, God, you didn't give me a chance. Well, the same thing is true when someone comes and makes some kind of a commitment or some kind of a decision for Jesus Christ. The minute you make that, you are supposed to come into Jesus Christ. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and shall be done unto you. Now, first of all, let me tell you, if you over here say, yes, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, it's automatic you're going to want to abide in him. Twenty-six years ago, I said, yes, I give myself to her and to her alone. Now, I am abiding with her. I don't say, well, let's see, how many nights this week am I going to abide with her? Let's see, uh, you know. You know, I think I'll really bless her this week. I'll stay with her four nights. Is that ridiculous? Well, some people get all uptight when you say, if you're really in Christ, you're going to abide in Him. If you're really born again with the Spirit of God, you're going to love Him. You're going to have a hunger for the things of God. But let me tell you something. If I make that commitment to my wife and some night all of a sudden by an act of my will I say I forsake that thing, she couldn't stop me. If I say I deny that vow, she couldn't stop me. I wouldn't make any difference as far as God is concerned, but she couldn't stop me. My will is involved and I can go do what I want to do. God is not holding us to him. You cannot force a relationship, a love relationship. A love relationship is desired by both parties. Well, what is about the brother? What does it say there in the Word of God? No man can pluck you out of his hand. Absolutely. But it doesn't say anywhere in the Word of God that you and I can't crawl out of his hand. He that denieth me before men, him will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. He which confesses me before men, it's very simple. Him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Why are you getting so uptight and all shook over that? Do you have any intention of walking away from God? Now, let me tell you something. It doesn't mean that if you stumble and fall into sin and get up and say, oh, God, I don't want that in my life, forgive me that God's going to throw you on the waste heap. You see, the attitude of a believer is different from a person who is in rebellion to God. When you sin, you may sin four or five times, but you, oh God, I'm miserable. I don't want this in my life anymore. That's the evidence of the new life. That's the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you ever deny Jesus Christ and tell the Holy Spirit to get away from you, don't worry about it. You'll never worry about it again. He'll move away from you, and you couldn't care less about the things of God. So people say, well, I don't know that I'm lost or saved. Well, if you're concerned about it at all, that's evidence that the Spirit's there. So I don't want people to get all uptight about this. But what I'm trying to tell you is that the divine life of Christ is in those who abide in the vine. Okay? When someone tells me I made a decision 18 years ago and they're living like hell's frozen over, I'm not impressed with that decision back there. He that saith he hath, it walked in the, I mean, excuse me, he that saith he is in him and walketh in darkness is a liar, and the truth is not in him. How many of you, if you knew I was running off with everybody else in the world every night of the week, and only came home to eat and get my laundry done, 
How many of you would believe me if I said, oh, yes, I love Beverly with all my heart. I just can't live without her. You say, boy, there's something phony here, like a $3 bill about that guy. I mean, if he really loved her, why isn't he with her? You know, we don't have to get all spiritualized, all this stuff. The same thing is true. If we really love Christ, we'll want to be with him. We'll want to talk to him. We'll want... Now, I mean, just... You see, what I'm trying to deal with two things here. First of all, some people who feel that, you know, once you've got it, you can't lose it because it's sewn in the lining of your underclothes. You know, it's just there. And then I'm dealing with the other person that feels like it's glued there with some weak glue, and every time you have to keep grabbing hold of it, you're going to lose it, you know? I'm trying to touch both of you and make you understand there's a middle ground here that, that's true to the Word of God. And by the grace of God, we're going to have some books in the library here. I've, I've ordered some books called Life in the Sun, and I hope you'll read it. Life in the Sun. It's by Robert Tank. And I don't sit down and think you're going to read it if you're, just going to, if you're one of these people who just likes to read comic books, because it is a presentation of the truth concerning our relationship in Jesus Christ. How we find that relationship through our abiding in Him, and Him abiding in us. And that's where our security is. What I'm trying to say to you is if you love Christ and you tell Christ that you love him, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean you never fail. It doesn't mean that you, you, you aren't the housewife you're supposed to be. Because you just don't keep the house exactly right or because you and your husband have a little spat once a while, that doesn't mean you aren't saved. The Holy Spirit is working on you, knocking off the rough edges. You see, as soon as you start talking about the possibility of losing your salvation, some people, the minute a bad thought goes through the mind, they say, oh my God, I've lost my salvation. No! There's a struggle Paul talks about that goes on inside your body and in your mind all the time. It's the power of the Holy Spirit revealing the Word of God to you and the life of Christ to you, and at the same time, the old responses of the flesh. The old man is there. The nature, sin nature is there trying to get you to listen to it. And that's why the Word of God says that we are to be submitted to the Spirit of God. That our spirit, soul, and body is to be totally committed to Him. So that when the flesh comes along, we, by a, a victory already in our minds, have won. We say, I am to listen to only those things that are true, honest, just, pure, holy, and of good report. If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, that's it. When doubt, and unbelief, and fears, and all these other things come in, poverty comes and tries to tell us, you're not going to make it this much, I refuse that thought in the name of Jesus, because the Word of God says, my God shall supply all my needs. Now, let me tell you something. I'm not talking about psyching yourself up. If you're being obedient to the Word of God and in the area of stewardship, you can get on your knees and believe that God will meet your needs. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, and by the way, in 1 John it says, abiding in him is to obey his commandments, then you'll ask whatsoever things you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, let's go back to what I said. That's the problem that we were talking about. The problem is God wants to do a work in your life and mine to be a usable vessel for him. And he can't do it unless we let him do it. He, when he says we're the clay, he talks about hard clay and soft clay. And he wants us to be moldable in his hands. But he, we, that can't happen until we become we come to the third point. You say, oh, that could discourage us until we come to the third point. As we talked about last week, and that was the what? The potter. Looking at the potter. To know that God has a purpose, a plan for our life, and it is so much infinitely better than what you and I could ever suppose that it encourages us to say, Lord, I give my life to you completely. Mold it any way you want to. Do anything you want to with it, Lord. I'll not doubt. I'll not have unbelief. I'll just try to walk in obedience to you and say, Lord, do whatever has to be done because I know it's going to be wonderful. 
because your thoughts toward me are continually good. For God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If we can trust God for our eternal soul's future, why can't we trust him for our everyday needs and our future in this life? He has a blueprint. He has a blueprint. We don't even have to send him some samples. He knows already what he wants for us and where he wants us to be. And all he's saying, if you'll just be pliable in my hands, I may send you anywhere. I may teach you anything. I might run you through a lot of things that you don't understand. But if you'll just be quiet and know that I'm God and praise me, you'll come out on the other side. That's what we talked about last week. Now, let me make a statement again. I've made it before. Let me make it again. I believe that the greatest sin against the Holy Spirit today in the church is inflexibility. The greatest sin in the church of Jesus Christ today is inflexibility. We are creatures of habit. We do not like to change. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll find out that the children of Israel, first of all, had a tabernacle. God dwelt in a tent made with hands. And it was difficult to get the children of Israel to get their mind off of the tabernacle and suddenly change. Now we have a temple. And then after they got established and set on the fact that God was in the temple, they made all kinds of ritualistic things and ideas and principles centering around that temple. And they became legalistic to where when Jesus came, all the original purposes of God for the temple and the, and the presence of God being in the temple had been distorted. He said, you have destroyed the commandments of God by your traditions. And so God had to start turning them upside down again and shaking them inside out again. And they got all upset and they nailed them to a cross. Because they didn't like change. Jeremiah, the 48th chapter. It's an interesting thing here in Jeremiah. God's talking about Moab. Moabites were descendants of Lot. They didn't have a very good foundation upon which to build. Jeremiah, chapter 48, verse 10. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. That, that means st stays out of the battle. Well, that's a pretty powerful verse. Cursed is be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully with the wrong motivation. Why are you serving the Lord? Is it for recognition? Popularity? Out of a sense of martyrdom? Or is it because you really love him and realize he has a plan for your life and a purpose for your life and a ministry for your life and you're doing it as a response in obedience to his leading in your life, his blueprint for your life? Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from the blood. From blood. Now, you see again, I don't dare get into these verses because I could be there all morning. But those people that like to go to large churches because they can hide in the crowd... And if they don't make it one or two or three or four or five Sundays, no one notices. And they think this is very nice because if we want to go to church, we can. If we don't want to go to church, we don't have to. You know, they don't even know the first thing about the battle. Now, let me tell you something. You don't have to go to a big church to do that. I've seen some people that even come to church maybe two times a week. They still are out of the battle. Sometimes they come because of pressure. They don't like to be embarrassed when people when they come back and the people say, where have you been? We really missed you. But there's not a sense of... Thank God I get an opportunity to go to church again. I get to be with the body of Christ. I get to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. 
I get to hear what the Lord has to say through the pastor again this coming Sunday. So I can feed on it through the week. He says, cursed be he that stays away from blood, or stays out of the battle, doesn't get involved. Uh, when uh, the children of Israel were going into the promised land, Issachar and Zebulun, I think it was, the two sons, two tribes, said, uh, listen, we love the land on this side of the, of the Jordan River. Why don't you go across and we'll just stay here because this is perfect for us raising our cattle over here. Joshua says, you just know one thing. If you don't go with us, send every man that can carry a sword on the other side and fight until all the property has been won, all the battle has been fought, all the victories have been accomplished. If you don't do that, you'll be sure your sin will find you out. They said, we'll take every man that can carry a sword and go right along with you. We'll win the whole territory that God's promised us on the other side, and then we'll come back to our land. Joshua said, based upon that, that's fine. You stay here. And I wonder how many today are saying, Brother Webb, bless God, we're just going to stay here, but you guys go on. Well, you know, it's just very comfortable right here in this second or third or fourth pew and, and Sunday morning type thing. You know, well, you just go on. You'll be sure. Your sin will find you out sooner or later. Well, things are going pretty even right now. Well, that's, that's all right. Backsliding is never a blowout. It's always a slow leap. And I've seen people just get colder and colder and deader and deader and further and further and further along. Brother Webb, can you come over? We're having some real problems in our home. Surprise! I just don't understand it. Yeah, it must be really tough. Mm-hmm. Check your record lately? Well, we don't want to get into bondage about going to church. Brother, you're in bondage the minute you say that. Because the Word of God says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And one of the word, commandments in the Word is, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a man or so near. Brother Webb, having been in church every time the door's open, that's legalism. No, it isn't. It's obedience. And obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, we have to sacrifice to come to church. Then you're in trouble. It ought to be a blessing to come to church. Look at verse 11. Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and he hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remaineth in, remained in him, and his scent is not changed. You know what he was talking about there? God was talking to people who knew what it was to produce wine. And whenever they had wine, they'd pour wine into a big vessel and let it ferment and let all the sediment go down to the bottom, all the great parts of the grape go down to the bottom. When it all settled down, they would be very careful and pick up that vase and they'd pour it into another vessel. And when they got down to the bottom, they'd leave all the sediment in the bottom of that bottle for that vase. They'd let it sit there for a while and then when that got... Settled very well, they'd pick that up and pour it into another bottle like that and leave all the sediment in the bottom. And they'd keep doing it because they knew that if they left the sediment in the bottom, they'd begin to give a stronger taste to the wine and the wine wouldn't be clear. It'd begin to muddy up as the death process took place with the grapes. And so they had to keep dumping them from place to place. And God says, you know what the problem with Moab is? He's never been dumped from vessel to vessel to vessel to get the smell out of him and to get his own stubbornness out of him and to make him change and be flexible. And you know, there's just a whole bunch of people today who are Christians who are just like Moab. Oh God, I just love it in this octagon shape. Don't move me. God says, wait a minute, I've got a heart shape over here. Oh God, I hate heart shapes. Well, that's all right. We've got to change. Oh Lord, it just hurts. And after a few years, we say, you know, Lord, this heart shape doesn't feel too bad. I, I like this little bit. God says, time to put you in a hexagon. Oh no, Lord, that's nothing worse than a hexagon. And so, you know, God says, that's just exactly what I've got to do to you. I've got to keep dumping you from vessel 
a vessel so you don't get in a rut. It's an intimate, personal, moment by moment, day by day, relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you have that, let me tell you something. You'll be dumped from vessel to vessel to vessel. I guess I can give another illustration that ought to be very understandable to many of you. Many of you at one time were single. And you may have had a hard time accepting correction from your parents. They tried to dump you from vessel to vessel. But you were able to walk out of your house. Say, I don't need to stand for that. And you went and got jo a job. And your employer tried to dump you from vessel to vessel to mature you and to shape you up and to get you to learn how to act. I don't have to put up with that. I was looking for a job and I found this one. I can keep looking. So down the road you go. No change whatsoever. You go to school. And the teachers try to change you. Well, I can put up with this for one year, but they're not going to change me. And you go all with your life. And then you find that little sweet, quiet, you know, precious little girl or that big, strong, handsome, strapping young man. Oh, I'd like to live with him forever. And so you join. You become one flesh. And all of a sudden, God says, now I'm going to dump you from vessel to vessel. And you turn and you talk. And you want to know why there's so many homes breaking up today? It's because they never learned how to get dumped from vessel to vessel at home. They never had to be dumped from vessel to vessel at a job. They were able to get hang on tight enough not to change in school. And God says, well, I'll put you in one relationship where you'll either change or else. And people say, oh, no. And they jump out of it, think they're getting away. Well, that's where they run into a wall. God says, you just missed it. Because I put you somewhere where you can't get away and I'm going to dump you from vessel to vessel to vessel. And you'll find out it may take years, but God finally begins to change us. We call it mellowing. But what God's doing is rubbing the rough edges off in a, in a situation where we can't get away. And this is what God's talking about here. If we're going to be usable vessels, He said, I want you to know, I want that commission, commitment to be so complete, so total to me. That when I take a hold of you as the vessel and I'm the potter and I begin to dump you from one to the other to the other to change you, that you'll let me do that. You'll be flexible enough. I was dumped from the vessel of Christian and Missionary Alliance over into Baptist and then over into the interdenominational and then into charismatic and from charismatic into more about healing and into deliverance and all these different and into new doctrinal positions from the Word of God. I was dumped from Calvinism, Armenianism into Calvinism, and back into Armenianism, into uh, uh, abiding in Christ. And let me tell you, every time you change, it hurts. But every time you change, you are again acknowledging the authority of this in your life. You may have a partial understanding of this right now. When God gives you additional understanding in the Word of God, you don't stand and say, now wait a minute, I wouldn't dare change because... Someone may think I'm unstable. No, it's when you begin to resist this that you become unstable. Praise God. I'm not going any further. But I've said this morning, just on that point alone, flexibility, bendability, pliability. This is what God desires in our lives. You see, Moab, there in Jeremiah, the 48th chapter, because Moab would not allow, had not been dumped from vessel to vessel, God says, now I'm going to judge them. Now I'm going to carry them into captivity. They are going to be destroyed. 
because of inflexibility, unwillingness to change, the old stench of the flesh staying in there, the old stench of the self-will staying in there. And I just want to encourage you this morning to recognize that, number one, God wants to use you as a vessel, and he has a specific plan for your life. And secondly, I want you to know that when he begins to work with you, one of the first things he's going to do is see if you're flexible enough to be dumped from vessel to vessel. He wants all the sediment out. He wants nothing but the pure vine there. I am the vine, ye are the branches, he says. He wants the pure fruit of the vine without any of the sediment, without any of the waste, without any of the settling. So that when people come and taste of you, they'll taste and see that the Lord is good. They won't say, boy, if that's religion, I don't want it. If that's what you call religion, brother, you can have it. You know what they're finding? They're finding a pot full of old, unchanged, inflexible wine. All the sediment of self is still in the bottle. And sooner or later, there is a price that has to be paid. God says, stay flexible. One of the first things you learn in the military is to be flexible. Hello, how many of you guys have been in the military? One of the first things in the military you learn is to be flexible. It's something like they say, if it, if it uh, moves, salute it, and if it doesn't move, paint it. And you say, yes, sir, on the way up when they tell you to jump. You learn to be flexible because this guy will say this to you and another guy come around the corner and say that to you. And yes, sir, yes, sir. Three bags full. <laughs> You're flexible, you see. God says, that's what I want. I want an army of people who are flexible and they know what the orders are. There's no uncertain sound coming out of them. They hear the trumpet clearly and they walk in the sound of my word. But I can dump them any size, any state vessel that I need to dump them into and they can still be what I want them to be for the glory of God. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 21 only. 2 Timothy 2, 21. If a man therefore purge from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the, for who? And prepared unto every good work. We purge ourselves by an act of our will, determined that God's going to have control of our lives. Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to direct our lives. And the end result will be that we will be prepared under every good work that God has called us to. And he said he has called us unto good work. We have been called unto good works. But we talked this morning about the fact that the greatest sin against the Holy Spirit today is inflexibility. A unwillingness to let God dump us from one vessel into another. I want you to know that this is not a new experience in the body of Christ or in the relationship between God and man. All through the scriptures, God has had to cause his leaders to become flexible. This is not in my notes, but I want you to know that Gideon went through a flexing experience. All the things that Gideon had possibly ever learned about warfare had to be set aside to hear what God had to say about doing battle against the enemy. He said, call everyone that will go to war 
and they all came, and there were 32,000, and he said, now, Lord, how do you want me to break them up in regiments? He said, well, the first regiment I want you to break up are all the cowards. I want you to stand up and tell them if they're afraid, go on home. Lord, look, there's 180,000 of the enemy, and there's only 32,000 of us. Right. The odds aren't good enough yet. We need to tear them down. You see, we're going to get them by a new method called my method. My method is not by the arm of flesh, because the arm of flesh will fail you. Send the cowards home. And I, I just, you see, I have been in public relations in the past, and I have been in sales in the past, and I just almost snicker when I think of how Gideon must have gotten up and what he wanted to say to all those 32,000 men. He probably said, act enthusiastic, now you'll be enthusiastic. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. Now every one of you look like you're real warriors in heart and mind and spirit. And after about a 30-minute tirade of telling him how wonderful they were, he just casually said, Now, God told me to tell you if you're really afraid, why, no, there's none of you are, but if some of you might be afraid, you can go home. He thought that there was a stampede in front of him. Virtually all of them left. And he said, God, why don't we call this campaign off? No, he says, we're getting there. He says, we're just not quite there yet. Now, I want you to take all the rest of them that aren't afraid down to the creek here, and you let them drink in the creek, and you watch them. Every one of them that stick their face down in the water and lap it like a dog, face down the water, rather than picking the water up and watching while they're drinking and being alert, send all those laugh like a dog, send them home. They're, they're, they're careless. They aren't watchful. Send them home. I don't know what this tells you, but first of all, it tells me that if God's looking for an army today, he's not looking for the faint-hearted, and he's not looking for those who are dull of spirit. Those that aren't aware of the fact that there's a a battle going on. But Gideon had to be flexible to where he ended up with 3,000 men against some 180,000 of the enemy. So many of them, I, I believe that was a number in my mind, but there were so many of them that they're just like grasshoppers over the land. They just covered the whole land. And they just, he said, now we're going to get our, our rockets and our M15 rifles and our uh, uh, automatic uh, weapons and everything. We'll just surround them and we'll just knock them down. And God says, no. He said, all I want you to do is get a lantern and a picture to put over the top of it and a trumpet. And he said, I want you to go out and all of you get positioned with the lantern covered with the picture so no one can see it yet. Then I want you to hit the, the break the uh, picture, hold the lantern high, blow the trumpet and say, the army of Gideon. Sword of the Lord Gideon, that was it. Sword of the Lord Gideon. They all shouted and the enemy turned on one another and destroyed themselves. Now, let me ask you something. If you were a general, and God told you to take this army that was so innumerable, you could, I mean, just as far as you could see, with nothing but soldiers, and then God began to giving you these directions, what would you say? Satan, I rebuke you! Get away from me. What do you mean? I won't have anything to do with you. See, God's ways are not man's ways, and man's ways are not God's ways, and when God calls someone to serve him, there are going to be times when he tells you to do something. It's not going to be the normal way to do it. And he says, I want you to be the clay. You be flexible. You do it my way. As you come over to the New Testament, look at me in Acts, the 18th chapter, verses 24 through 28. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. Now, by the way, when it says scriptures here, he's talking about what? The Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament mighty in the Old Testament, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. And by the way, that word fervent means 
boiling over and so he was just on fire. Today we'd say, man, is that dude on fire? Being fervent, so he was excited when he got up. He was an eloquent man. When he got fired up, man, he, I mean, he really moved the congregation. Being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. What was he teaching if he was teaching only the baptism of John? Repentance. But what else was he declaring? He said, the kingdom's coming, and the fire's coming. The, the one that God promised is coming. Get your hearts right, repent, get ready, get ready, get ready. And he was throwing up the crowd there saying, what we, should we do? And he said, you need to repent and, uh, repent and then get baptized. Just get your heart right and ready for the coming of the king. Let you understand something here. It says he was not only eloquent, but he was very well versed in the scriptures. And he was on fire. He was very excited. Well, I want you to notice something here in verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, he began to speak where? He was starting to tell them that a Messiah was coming. Now, you know, they had already had a few others around that had said that before, hadn't they? I wonder what kind of a stir that made when he went back in the synagogue and said, there is a Messiah coming, and some of them thought, oh no, not another one of those. I mean, we just got rid of one of them, you know. Here, here comes another one along now. Think about what, what circumstances he was in. He was going back to Ephesus and going back to the temple now, where the New Testament church had already been established in Ephesus, and he was saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and he was just all excited about it. Can you imagine Christians walking down the street and seeing a sign out in front of the synagogue that says, revival meeting? Whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily, get this, he mightily convinced the Jews, and that in private meetings, there wasn't any moss on that guy, was there? I mean, they had just, not too many years before, crucified Jesus Christ, and now he was coming right out in the public again, and saying, I've got a message to give you, and that is that you guys crucified the Lamb of God. And that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Let me tell you something. Apollos had to be flexible. I don't think that there was a great amount, there were a great amount of people going around preaching his message. And he felt that he really had a message that needed to be heard. And when he went into the Jewish synagogues and held revival meetings in the Jewish synagogues, it must have been quite a blow to him to have a husband and wife walk up to him, because in that day the Jews didn't have a whole lot of regard for the woman, but have a wife and a husband come up and say, Paulus, we really appreciate the message you've got, but do you know there's something missing here? What do you mean missing? I'm an apostle of John the Baptist. He preached the true message. I believe he was a prophet of God. We thoroughly believe that too, Apollos. We believe that too, but John the Baptist now said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And John the Baptist realized, he said, behold the Lamb of God. Let us tell you about the Lamb of God that he pointed to. And they from the scriptures went back, and now because he already knew the scriptures in the Old Testament, they went back and said, you see this, you see this, you see this? It was all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in each case, there had to be a bending and a twisting and a turning around. And Aquila and Priscilla came to Apollos and said, there are some changes that need to be taking place in your theology. Where you are is true, where you are is right, but there's more. And he gave him more. Peter, as you know, had to be very flexible when he came and was invited over to see Cornelius. 
We talked about that not too long ago, ten years after the experience of Pentecost. Can you imagine for ten years they only spoke to the Jews? The message only went to the Jews for ten years after Pentecost. The nation of Israel were the only ones to hear the message of the gospel. God isn't interested in those Gentiles. I'll guarantee you one thing, if there's any chance to be interested in the Gentiles, I know those Samaritan dogs, he wouldn't touch them because they're a bunch of half-breeds. He wouldn't have anything to do with them. Now, I know that God probably loves them, but he certainly hasn't got anything for them as far as the kingdom of God is going to Peter. What? Take and eat. Mm, not so, Lord. Never have done that. No, you know, I am a Jew. I, I, I mean, I'm honest all the way through. Peter, take and eat. Peter, take and eat. Three times. Lord, what in the world are you trying to show me? Peter, there's some guys knocking at the door. I want you to go with them. Sure, Lord. Who are they? Oh, there's some synagogue around here. <coughs> Gentile. Now, come on, get yourself in his suit. Ten years of preaching. I mean, he already had the baptism. He walked down the street, and wherever his shadow would fall on someone, they'd get healed. How can you add anything to him? He has to have it all. God said, Peter, you go with him. He went with them, and he walked into their home. It took them, I think, a day or two to get to Cornelius' home. And when they got in there, he said, I perceive, I perceive, God just hey, it's coming through. That thick skull, that old Jewish tradition is breaking through. I perceive that God's not a respecter of person. I wonder if Peter thought at that moment, how many Gentile nations have I gone, or towns have I gone by and haven't even said anything to in 10 years? Peter said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I should withstand God? Ten years after Pentecost, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And you notice that later on in the book of Acts, when they went to the Samaritans, where Philip was over in Samaria, and uh, folks accepted Christ. Who was the first one to go over there? Peter. Peter went over and prayed with them. They had already accepted Christ, but he went over and laid hands on them, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and Simon the sorcerer came along and wanted to buy that, you remember? But it was Peter. God had done a work in his life. Now he was flexible, and he was, he said, well, if God can do this for the Gentiles, boy, we're going right on down the ladder. Here, turn down to these old Samaritan dogs. He can do it for them. I think we have to realize that Jesus saves from the uttermost to the guttermost, someone said. And there needs to come a flexibility within the body of Christ to recognize that God, ground at the foot of the cross, is absolutely level. Now, I don't know how much I have to elaborate on that with you. You see, this is why the Word of God tells us it doesn't make any difference what a man possesses. What's really important is what possesses a man. And if you and I are possessed by the Spirit of God, the first thing we'll see that will remove the stigmatism from our eyes is that no one is any better or any less than we are. The only difference is the grace of God in our life. And I was in a church in Minneapolis years ago where one person that was a multimillionaire sat in a seat there, and right next to him was a man who had old work pants on and a work shirt on, and the one, the lady with a diamond necklace around her neck and the mink stole over her coat was playing a violin here in this orchestra in the church, and this fellow sitting next to her was playing his instrument right alongside of her, and right alongside was a working man, and alongside of that was a doctor, and alongside of that was something else, and that whole orchestra was made up of the whole spectrum of society. One guy, in fact, was a former alcoholic they found in the gutter with 
vomit and wine all down the front of him and a broken bottle in his hand. They brought him in and got him saved and got him on his feet and he later on became a missionary. That whole orchestra is made up of every spectrum of the society. But they all, when they got through playing afterwards, come up and hug each other and love each other and encourage one another and build one another. That's God.